0: Namoita Sam Bagavato at a hatto, Samma Samputasam. Namoita Sam Bagavato at So we've been looking at the framework of the four foundations of mindfulness and uh, having plenty of opportunity to practice them through the day. For some folks to have the framework is very helpful so you know what you're working with and what, what kind of shape it is and how to get on with it, and for others it's a bit in the way. It's like, oh gosh, another list, and oh, what what came after that, and then what? How many was that? And so, uh, since I've been one of those people for probably most of my life, <laughs> I thought I would uh, speak a little bit about the foundations of my first in a more general way. So, when I first started to practice. I was taught the. I was taught mindfulness of breathing, Anapanasati. And the instruction was to sit. You know, I was, on, I was on quite a big cushion, just sit with my legs crossed and eyes closed, and pay attention to the tip of my nose and watch the breath entering and leaving my nostrils. So we did that. I did that for half an hour with my friend. And. Uh, I think it was probably unremitting uh, noise in my head when I did that. I, I probably was able to stay with the breath a little bit, but the, the overwhelming experience was of, of the noise of my mind that wouldn't stop. And uh, then the next day, another half an hour, and pretty similar, constant, constant, mostly critical judgment. Judgment of myself, judgment of the cushion, judgment of my friend—you know—on it went. And then the third day, I decided to just try it for an hour. Maybe if I do it for an hour, I get a little bit of peace. <laughs> Cause I'm not really getting close for half an hour, and so we sat for an hour. And then somewhere towards the end of that hour, there was just this moment, or maybe three moments, where everything opened up, and the the mind was quiet and there was a sense of peace. Ah, oh, so wonderful. And, and then it started again, all it went. But that was enough just to show me that, that it was possible for the mind to be peaceful and for the, the noise to drop away. So it gave me a, a kind of a, a taste of the possible that I couldn't forget, that I wanted <coughs> more of. And I was just reflecting on, you know, the actual the meditation instruction was on being mindful of the breath, but actually the experience was being mindful of the mind, and the objects of mind. That's what was actually going on most of the time. So if somebody had said to me, "Be be aware of your mind states," I probably wouldn't have known what to do, and it would have just carried on as it had been without me really understanding what was going on. But because I was uh, directed to be mindful of the breath, just got kind of a subtle object, if you're not trained to be mindful. Then I had a chance to see what the mind was doing. And that was really the first time I'd really had a chance to see what this mind was doing and I realized it's doing that all the time. It's doing that all the time and my life is motivated by that constant judgment and criticism that's going on. And I just didn't even notice before. So it also gave me a great incentive to do something about it to, to uh, try and transform this mind which was uh, probably a much greater task than I had first expected um, But in terms of the, the foundations of mindfulness I just think it's notable that one can choose a particular one of the particular foundations so mindfulness of breathing is, one, is within the, f- the first foundation of mindfulness is one of the aspects of mindfulness of body And one can stay, can use that, and stay with that. But other aspects of the foundations of mindfulness come in, and they don't have to take you away from the the practice. So, so if you're trying to practice mindfulness of breathing, and then some very strong thoughts are coming up, or the mind is is so the mood of the mind is so strong that you just can't shift your attention out of that, the mood of the mind, then let the mood of the mind be your object of meditation. Or if, uh, if, you're, if you're caught in doubt about how you should be practicing, know that that is a, one of the five hindrances. It's a, it's a doubt, hindrance of doubt, which is one of the foundations of mindfulness, this object of mind. It's going on within the mind. And let that bring you back what is happening here and now. So the, the whole purpose of the, the practice of Satipatthana is to be with what is happening here and now, simply put. And you know, the thinking mind is, is, is so, well, so often living in the past or, or in the future. The mind is constantly you know, being pulled into memories or planning or fantasy or maybe uh, can travel, can travel the whole world. You can sit here on your, on your mat and be traveling all over the cosmos. You know. <laughs> but the body is still here. The body hasn't moved. And the breath is still going on. So. The, the possibility is, is always here, the possibility to, to be fully present with what is, is always here and the, and the, the tools for that are always here. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha isn't saying you have to you know, develop some very special state and then when you've developed that very special state then you, then you can start to experience some fruits and uh, you know, then, when you experience some fruits, then you'll get some maybe confidence in the practice. And he's not, saying he's not saying you've got to do anything other than be mindful with what is happening here and now. So, with the mindfulness of the body, you know, he's saying be mindful of the body sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. So, the four basic postures. And then he elaborates be mindful of the body stretching. It basically list pretty much anything, everything that the body does. Getting up, going down, stretching, turning around, eating, drinking, defecating, urinating, you know, all of it, everything. Everything that we're doing is an opportunity to come back and be be present with this, to be mindful, isn't? It's like every single thing is an invitation to come back to presence. <laughs> mindful is a feeling, you No, know, it's not saying that there has to be no feeling, or there has to be pleasant feeling, or there has to be, you know, otherworldly pleasant feeling. If uh, we were talking about of the you know, the jhanic states or the the. Um, Places of insight. He's not saying you have to have that before you can have an effective meditation on feeling. He's saying, Know the feeling as it is. Just as it is, that's all. So, whatever feeling is arising is not an obstacle to our practice. It's an invitation to come back and see this. And then, with the mind, mindfulness of mind. That was my main practice for many years: mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of mind objects. And again, we identify so strongly with the mind, with our minds. And if the mind's confused, I experienced a lot of confusion. I had a lot of confusion, and uh, I think I had a lot before I was a nun. But uh, during the years in, in monastic life, then you know you don't have much. Uh, you just have to be with it. You know, you, you can't really do much to shift it and you're sitting there with this state of confusion. The mind's cloudy, can't think straight. And it's, uh, you know, cause, there's causes and conditions, so I can oh yeah, know what the causes and conditions are. And and then it's a case of just having to be patient, really, with a confused mind and get to know what it feels like. And, and that it's kind of limiting, as it's very limiting what one can do with a confused mind. But it's it, that's how it is. So instead of getting, instead of thinking, "Oh no, I'm such a confused person. I'm so hopeless. I really shouldn't be like this. I should be different." You know, you can do that. That's grasping, attachment, identification. Or you can know that oh, the mind is confused right now. It's not very functioning very well, and better work within these limitations. You know. Better not try to do anything too elaborate while the mind's confused. And knowing that it changes, it'll change. So, you know, we can do the same with depression, with the mind's depressed. It's also something I experienced a lot in my youth, a lot of depression, very deep depression. And then in the monastery, that, that would also come again, you know, periods of depression. Fortunately, there'd been a very clear insight quite early on into, into the impermanence of depression because it has the quality, depression has this quality and it still will if it arises now. It has the quality of saying it's always been like this and it's always going to be like this. So when the mind depressed it feels like it's never going to change. It's always, the depression is always going to be there. Life's always going to be like this. But the, the fact of it is it, it's impermanent like everything else. So once one sees that really clearly, once you go through you know, a period of depression and then it <coughs> shifts and you come out the other side and it might have a radical shift, you know, I had at one time a very radical transformation at the end of a period of quite deep depression and then it was like, wow, you know, it, it changes. <laughs> however strong and however deep and however eternal it might appear to be, it, it changes. When you know that, then the clouds of depression come over the mind, you can you can get to know it. You don't have to push it away, you don't have to, you know, feel like you're hopeless because you, you're depressed. You can you can know depression. So I, I kinda of really made friends actually, honestly, with depression. And then it would come it doesn't come very often anymore, but it would come and and Literally, there'd be a sense of like, oh, my old friend, I haven't seen you for a while, you know. It would actually come from the heart. Come in, you know, have a cup of tea. You know, I expect you 'd be around for a while, so, you know. <laughs> there'd be this sense of like, it's fine. It's fine for you to be there. You can be as long as you like. This room. And then at some point it would end. And, the, and I noticed that the more I would accept depression, the more... It, it became sort of, you know, like a, a friendly visitor, the less it was interested in coming around. <laughs> so, you know, when we try to fight with, with something like depression, then we're adding to it, really. We're attaching to it. So when we identify with it, or if we try to push it away, you know, we're, we're, we're attaching to depression. So, you know, mindfulness is, is welcoming, it's, it's interested, it's accepting of, of what is. It's not asking our experience to be perfect or the way we want, it's, it's interested with what has arisen here. And then there are other qualities like lust. This is something. If we pay, if we take a lot of interest in lust, then, then we can get into trouble. <laughs> so, lust is something you have to have to be a little bit more, you know, not not so welcome. We don't don't necessarily want to invite that one in so easily because it can just so easily take over. So, lust is is, for, is helpful to start to challenge it. Question. And uh, put it into the perspective of. Uh, I mean, contemplation of death is very helpful. Something I did a lot also when I was younger. And as I said once before, the the uh, reflections on the unbeautiful. So you know, if you're feeling very strong desire towards something or someone, to look at them in a different way or look at it in a different way. You know, to look at you know, what's the body made up of. Is it, is it that lovely, really? And if you look at all of the, the bits and pieces of it, it's not that great. And you know, and, and just to reflect on that body, if it's... sometimes well, sometimes I say, you can, you can imagine a, a beautiful outfit hanging up in a shop. And then you think, oh, that's a really, a really lovely outfit, it's beautiful. And then you put that outfit onto a, onto a human body. And the, that person goes around and does their things and you, you keep it there for like a week two weeks, all the time. After a while it's not very, not very nice anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It starts smell bad, it looks crumpled, dirty. So that comes from being on the body. If it's still hanging in the shop, it wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. But that's, that's what human bodies are like. You know, they're, they're excreting through the skin and various orifices. That's what they do. But we don't think about that when there's when there's lust for someone. Just see the kind of the image, and then there's the, the thoughts and the fantasies. So, you know, if, if lust is arising in the mind, to to bring in these these counterbalances, to investigate, to look look in a different way, look more clearly at what's going on. But again, you know, we don't have to feel bad that, that, that there are lustful thoughts arising. It doesn't, we don't have to make ourselves into a bad person. Because that's what we do so easily, oh I'm such a bad, oh I'm doing that now, I'm, I'm hopeless and terrible. We don't have to do that, we, we just have to know what's going on and what to do with it. So, you know, knowing the mind, so like the confused mind is confused, the, Expanded mind is expanded. The bright mind is bright, and so on. Knowing the mind as it is, and then knowing the the objects of mind, knowing what's going on in the mind. And you know, <laughs> the mind that knows lust, for example. So, if, if 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 there's a lot of lust arising in the mind, the mind that knows lust is not lustful. It just is knowing. And the mind that knows depression is not depressed, it's just knowing. And the mind that knows confusion, because I've looked into this quite a bit, the mind that knows confusion is clear. It's not confused, it's clear. But it's clearly knowing confusion. So, you know, it's important to, to get to know the difference between what is knowing and what is known. Because they're not the same. So we can be we can be free with the most intense mind states going on, or the most confusing mind states going on. There can be clarity with that, knowing that you know this is this is confusion, this is a turmoil. I, I mentioned. Uh, Maybe it was in the question and answer day that, that you know, we're using ritual and that sometimes well, the ritual can, can create like a holding within which the ego can start to fall apart. You know, as, as part of that process sometimes there can be very intense, like cathartic things going on in a huge grief or rage, or fear, enormous, can, can be incredibly powerful at times. And, you know, when there's a certain strength of awareness, then we can let that happen. It's not a problem. We would try our best to create the situation that will be supportive for that. And then we just can let it it go on. Do its thing until it's finished. However intense it is. And if somebody saw us in the middle of it, they'd probably think, oh my God, what's going going on with that person? But actually the experience can be quite... um, There can be a peace even in the midst of the most incredible turmoil when there is awareness. So when we start to, you know, when we're we're practicing, we we never really know what's going to happen. Every um, meditation is an act of faith. Because when you sit down to meditate, you actually don't know what's going to happen in that time. It could be anything. It could be nothing at all. You never know. So, you know, this is why we need to develop the strength of awareness that can be with the conditions as they are, the conditions that are arising as they are. And, and to know the difference between knowing what's going on and identifying with what's going on, grasping what's going on, is the world of difference. So what's going on could be just, just the same, but what we do with it is the world makes the world of difference path of awakening, it is it is an an unraveling of the self so there's unraveling and there's also building, there's times when we're building stronger foundations and developing qualities of heart that maybe we've neglected like metta, loving kindness, compassion appreciation of others, good fortune equanimity and there's times when we're allowing the ego to fall apart. Or maybe we're not allowing it, but it's doing it anyway. So we just have to let it happen. And, this This is part of the path. There's nothing wrong in that. So the logical mind, the rational mind, would like this to be a nice, neat and tidy process. And we've got the teaching and it's all really kind of clear, all these lists. And you know, it's all kind of neatly laid out in stages and it looks all nice and tidy. But the experience isn't generally like that. It's a little bit like looking at a map, you know, you look at a map and you think, OK, I'm going to go there and go there and do that and end up at that place. And it looks like, Pretty neat and tidy, and you can even work out how how um, steep the hills are going to be, and you know you can get it all worked out, planned. And, but then, actually, when you're walking, when you're walking that path, it's something else altogether. And you feel you're feeling the the gradients of that hill on your body. It's hard work, or you you find yourself uh, knee deep in mud. That wasn't so clearly put out in the map, or you, you know, reach the top of the hill and see the most wonderful sunset, the most exquisite sunset, which just couldn't have been put in the map. So our, our spiritual path is like that too. You know, we don't we have the map and it all looks kind of clear, and we can get a sense of where to go next and more or less where it's heading, but the experience is is unique to each of us it's more, more messy and more beautiful than the map could ever convey. But as long as you're following the map, it will take you in the right direction. So the the Satipatthana is pointing us back here, to this experience, as it is in any moment. And, you know, it's, it's pointing in many different ways, so there's many, many different ways in or back. To this experience as it is. And at the end of the Satipatthana Sutra, has this very attractive little piece that says, you know, if you, if you practice this, if you practice these four foundations of mindfulness, you'll, you'll within seven years, you will become either enlightened or a, an anagami, a, a non returner. Then it says, well, not just in seven years, maybe in six in five, four, three, two, one year. And not just in one year, but in seven months. (laughs) Six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month. You can realize enlightenment or if not enlightenment, you can become a non-returner. And then it says, not even one month, but if in just seven days, if you really practice these four foundations of mindfulness, within just seven days, you can become fully enlightened, arahant, or if you don't realize arahantship, then you can become a (laughs) non-returner. It's very attractive, isn't it? So, you know, what is it? What is it pointing to, you know? If we can be mindful, continuously mindful, of these four foundations of mindfulness for every moment, of seven days. It's not that we all become enlightened, but it is that we will be enlightened, because our mind will be present in every moment. Enlightened mind is a mind that is present, awake, knowing, not pushing and not pulling. And the Buddha also says, so then, you know, of course, it's easy to start to grasp that. (laughs) I remember as an Anagarika being, and, some other, and a couple of other Anagarikas novices pulled me aside and said, Look, look, look at this sutta. You, know, you can get enlightened within seven days if you practice this. And it's like, oh, great, let's get on with it. You know, how do we do it? And, and then he realized, well, there's all of these, uh, <laughs> there's all the karma. They hadn't quite realized how much karma there was, how huge the floods of desire and fear and greed and confusion and aversion were. And it's like, okay, I've got to kind of struggle through that and get a bit of clarity. But uh, the Buddha says, you know, he, he gives this lovely image of uh, saying that practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. If you practice them, they will lead you to enlightenment. Or if not full enlightenment, then, then uh, non-returning. And he gives this lovely image of, of, a, of a hen sitting on a clutch of eggs. And the, the hen sitting on her nest with her eggs. And he says, if the, if the hen is sitting there saying, May my eggs hatch, may my eggs hatch, may my eggs hatch, may my eggs hatch. Then, you know, as long as she sits there, you know, when the time is right, the eggs are going to hatch. And then (laughs) then, if the hen is sitting on her eggs and she's not thinking, may my eggs hatch, may my eggs hatch, but she's just sitting there, keeping them warm, doing what chickens do, you know. Then, when the time is ready, the eggs will hatch. So he says that the, practicing the foundations of mindfulness, is like that. it's just like the hen sitting on the eggs. As long as she sits there on those eggs, when the time's right, they're going to hatch. And, you know, just like you know, the, the hen, she may be sitting there and she doesn't see any difference to the eggs, they don't look much different, they're just the same. They become maybe a little bit warmer as time goes by. But, you know, nothing spectacular is happening. But because the conditions are right, hidden inside those eggs there's this transformation happening, those little chicks are forming and growing And then when they're ready, they start to peck away at the shell and and come out And uh, it also says like the the hen, it doesn't work for her to peck the eggs and, and, and get those chicks out before they're ready you know, if she tries to do that then it's a disaster, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And she won't because she's wise him. But you know, as long as she just sits there, so it's just like, as long as the mindfulness just stays present, as long as there is mindfulness, we keep bringing that mindfulness back, then inevitably those eggs will hatch. So whether we think, you know, we don't have to practice um, the four foundations of mindfulness and thinking, when, are we gonna, when am I going to get it? When am I going to get it? You know, when am I going to get to see the results? You just have to do it. just have to do it. And the results will, when they're ready, they'll reveal themselves. You know, sometimes people ask about whether enlightenment is, or this practice and path is a... is it a gradual path or is it a sudden path? And these days there are a lot of people who speak about sudden awakening. You know, you get these sudden awakenings and I've noticed that, I don't know about everyone, but a number of these people who, who speak about the sudden awakening, you know, when you investigate a little bit about their lives, before they had the sudden awakening, they were spending years in intensive practice. <laughs> 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 I kind of forget to mention that. And uh, you know, that's also like these, these eggs, you know. Do they hatch suddenly or, or gradually? You know, it's like, well, the, the process is a gradual process. But the actual hatching is, is pretty sudden. It doesn't take long. It's like that. You know, there are, I don't know why I almost, always mention it on a retreat, but there are these stories of, well, of one monk and one nun in the, in the Terigata and the Terigata so that the, uh, the sayings of the enlightened monks and the sayings of the enlightened nuns. You know, there, there are the stories of, of one monk and, and one nun who, who each say something along the lines of 20 years of, of meditation and not a finger snap of, of concentration. And they're so desperate, and I've been practicing 20 years, I've been a monastic for 20 years, and I've had a finger snap of concentration, not even a moment's concentration. And they feel so desperate that they go, and, and I don't say this as a, as a recommendation of a system or anything, but they feel so desperate that they, that they go and get a rope, they tie it to a tree, and they decide they're gonna end their life, because they're just so hopeless, their practice is so hopeless and with both of these stories they they tie the rope in the tree and they're just kind of ready to hang themselves and then the moment the rope touches their neck they become enlightened it's amazing isn't it so that was was like 20 years of of hard work feeling like they're getting nowhere but that that getting nowhere was ripening and with that that condition suddenly the mind woke up hang on who is who is trying to end whose life here? So you know, of course, I, I'm not. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't recommend anyone trying this as a technique or anything. But it's just to to uh, point out that sometimes we can be practicing and in, and in, uh, you know very diligent and not really seeing the results of our practice. But it's it's happening anyway. It's like the ripening of a fruit. It's it's happening subtly that we don't notice it it's going on anyway and then when the, the time is right, the conditions are right then we, we realize the fruit of our practice so you know, don't, don't ever be discouraged and don't think that you know, this, is, this is for other people you know, don't think that like, or maybe we can do it because we're monastics and you can't Because it's got nothing to do with whether one's a monastic or not. It's to do with application of mindfulness, and willingness to keep going. So, you know, the practice of the Satipatthana practice is, is very simple, and it's very immediate. And every breath, every step, every movement, every mind state, every thought, is an invitation to come back to this. So in the retreat situation, we've got a lot of support in that, you know, not, dis- not much distraction, at least external distraction. It might be internal distraction. So you know, this is a really precious opportunity to, to uh, build and strengthen mindfulness. So that when we, we go out and we're in the, the challenges of our daily life, that that mindfulness is still with us. There's still a sense of presence and being willing to be with things as they are. There's a lovely little saying in the Dhammapada that goes, Gradually, gradually, a moment at a time, the wise remove their impurities as a goldsmith blows away the dross. I love that image. Because, uh, you know, a goldsmith, you have the, the raw gold that's still got, its, uh, got the impurities in there. And in order to, to purify the gold, you've got, to, you've got to put it in a container and you've got to heat it up really hot. You've got to get it really hot. And then when you get it really hot, the impurities come to the surface and then the, the goldsmith blows them away you know, and then it heats, heats it a little bit more and then blows it away so this could take a long time if there's a lot in there but you know, it's like recognizing this is, there's pure gold there's pure gold here and it's worth the effort so gradually, gradually, a moment at a time the wise remove their impurities as a goldsmith blows away the dross. So it might not look impressive, might not look like much is happening, but gradually, gradually that the gold of the mind, that preciousness of our being is being purified through mindfulness. So I'd just like to offer that for your encouragement this evening. And uh, you know, I wish that maybe we all be able to shine with, the, with this, the, the pure gold of our being, our mind, our Buddha nature or our pure awareness. May it, may it be clear and bright through our practice. Yeah.